Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I'm joined by my good friend today, Brian Yablonski. And Brian is incredibly accomplished in countless ways on the conservation and energy side of things. Uh, the bio that I could read is too long for, for anyone uh, to, to be able to listen to. Uh, he's now currently the CEO of the Property and Environment Research Center out of Bozeman, one of our great partners, a think tank and policy organization that's focused on free market market ways to solve conservation issues. But in his previous life, he's served as a as a leader in the in Florida on these issues uh, to, to former Governor Jeb Bush, but also um, also running the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, amongst many, many other titles that he's held. Uh, now with his role at PERC, he's really been spearheading a lot of the common sense practices around forest management, forest fires, and just basically how we can take care of our public and private lands uh, and what that kind of symbiotic relationship is between them. We're going to talk a lot about forest fires today, and I'm really excited to have you because it's so timely. Brian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Benji. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And uh, and I guess I want to start out by saying, you know, the elephant in the room is that it's, it's, it's July, and for already a month and a half, we've been talking about forest fires in the news. And the fires on the East Coast of North America, specifically in Canada, have you know caused a lot of air quality concerns for my home state of Wisconsin, all the way up to you know New York, DC, and really almost the entire east of the Mississippi part of the United States this the, to start the summer. What in the world is happening? And you know, how concerned should people be based on what they're seeing this early in the summer? What, what What's happening? And can you get can kind of give us a, a 101 on what you think uh, is happening on the East Coast? Yeah, no, I well, it's it's interesting and it's interesting that it's happening to the East Coast. Um, but but it is not unique to the United States uh, of America. We've been experiencing this out west for for decades now, and um, you know it was there was a lot of headlines. There've been a lot of headlines lately about uh, the worst air quality of any major city in the entire world. New York had it for a little bit, little period of time. Chicago had it for a period of time. Um, but if you recall, Benji, when you were back in Seattle, you know, it was just a couple of years ago, Seattle and Portland and San Francisco were holding uh, that uh, that title as having the worst air quality in the world. Um, and that's kind of consistent with what we're what we're seeing out west here. Um, what folks in the East Coast and Midwest are 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 witnessing um, is are the effects of about 110 years of misguided forest management. Um, that has focused exclusively pretty much on fire suppression, wildfire suppression, which is not a bad thing, but um, it, it has come at the cost of actually managing our forests for health. And then when you add climate change on top of it, you know, we've got hotter, drier uh, conditions, which just exasperate the fact that we've got massive fuel loads in our national forests that have not been tended to, you know, for more than a century. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the key misnomers about these forest fires is that it is always climate change that causes them. And we're gonna 
we're going to dive into the fact that it's very complicated as to why these forest fires are happening. It's a, it's a combination of many, many things. Um, but forest management is obviously a big part of that. I guess what, before we get into kind of what forest management is and why it's so important, it seems to be based on what you were alluding to on the West coast. And of course, what's happening this year on the East coast, that these forest fires are increasing in intensity and frequency. It just, I mean, it's always in the news. We're seeing it front and center in our day-to-day lives. Is that true? First of all, or is that just kind of the media overhyping it? Uh, and it's always kind of been this way. And if it is true, then, then why is, I mean, dive a little bit deeper into why they are increasing in your eyes. Uh, so kind of a two-part question there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it is true. I think the the data backs up that, that something is going on here. We know from the Forest Service data that uh, keeps track of what we call fire season, when we see fires in the United States, that in the 1970s, fire season used to be a five-month uh, period of time. Now it's a seven month period of time. So we've added two months annually to our fire season. Um, over the last eight years alone, uh, we've had an area the size of Colorado burn in the United States. So put, put your mind around the state of Colorado has burned, you know, over the last 10 years. And what we're seeing also, the, the National uh, Interagency Fire Center keeps data on uh, how many acres are burned each year. And, and they started keeping that data in 1983. It wasn't until recent years that we've seen 10 million or more acres being burned annually in the United States. So if you look at that data going back to the early 80s, it was usually single digit million acres. And now we're seeing, you know, in just the last seven years, three years where it's been 10 million or more acres. Uh, wow. So it's pr- it's pretty massive. What I say is, you know, we're living in the age of the mega fire and the mega fire is a fire over 100,000 acres. And to put a data point on that, if you took the state of California for the entire 20th century, they had a total of 45 mega fires. If you just took the first 20 years of the 21st century, they've already had 35 mega fires in the state of California. So, and, and what's scary is, you know, California is home to some of our most precious trees. I mean, redwoods and sequoias and sequoias alone, you know, which are unique to, to the United States. Uh, we've lost nearly 20% of the giant sequoias in the U S just since uh, just in the last three years alone since 2020. So, so pretty scary, pretty scary. What's going on again. It is a, it is a culmination of years of not putting an emphasis on forest management and continuing to have delays in implementing forest management and, and climate to your point, like when we watch the news about all the smoke, climate change is the first thing that folks talk about, but even if there was a magic wand and we fixed climate change tomorrow with some magic solution, you still have a hundred years of forests that are built up that are tinder boxes ready to go. So you got to fix that, you know, regardless of how you're addressing climate change, because the problem is sitting there, it's just waiting to explode. And we're seeing these explosions just happen year after year after year. Right. And, and I think that's the, that's the important point there is that there, the, the lack of forest management is a massive part of, of why these, these fires exist. And like you said, if we solve climate change, that would not solve the forest fire issue. And on top of that, as we'll talk, talk about in a little bit, um, I hope that, you know, the emissions from wildfires are substantial in addition to the obvious other issues that come from, from having these forest fires. So 
just taking a step back before we get into to more of the details, there's a lot of people, I think, in my generation and, and those who are listening to this that might not even understand really what forest management truly is. Like, obviously, the concept of managing forests makes sense to, to most people and they know what that means. But what actually is forest management? What does that look like? Uh, yeah. And 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 basically, why is that the important kind of puzzle piece here that could be such a big part of preventing these mega fires as you're talking about yeah so you have to you have to have an appreciation of what a healthy forest looks like and what historic forests look like in the united states when we did have more lightning strikes when we did have native americans doing prescribed burns and managing forests itself you know it's interesting i'm out here in bozeman montana you, you get people that fly in for the summer, they land, they look up at the mountainside around you and they see these lush, dense forests like, oh, look at that pretty forest. It's so, so wonderful. It's so thick. But for forest ecologists and scientists, those are not healthy forests. There's too, there's too much wood in the woods and our forests are choked. A healthy forest is more patchy. It's a mosaic of open spots. It's uh, open canopies where trees are, are dispersed and not all clustered together. So there's light coming down into the first forest floor. So you've got grasses that are growing down there. And that's good for wildlife. That's good for watersheds. This density of forest where things are, forests are so crowded that you can't even walk through a forest these days are, are not healthy forests. So, so the idea of forest management is to replicate what nature had been doing for a thousand years before we showed up on the scene here in North America, which is to open some of that up. And you, you do that through either mechanical thinning or prescribed burns or prescribed fire, which sounds counterintuitive, but you can use fire in a good way to clear underbrush in, in, uh, in the woods um, to, to open that canopy up. And what you're trying to do, and me mechanical thinning is another way to do it, where you're taking small diameter trees and getting rid of it so the old growth trees, the older trees will have more room to grow and can be healthier. And, and the idea of forest management is you're, you're in essence trying to eliminate ladder, what we call ladder, ladder fuels, which is the brush the, the live fuel and the dead fuel uh, closer to the to the forest floor that if it catches on fire it it jumps like a ladder to the canopies of the forest and then when you have canopy fires those are the massive wildfires that we have these days if that if that brush is cleared out there's no way it can jump up into the canopy and you have these massive conflagrations that you have so forest management is simply a way to get to a healthy forest and I think people have this this misperception that somehow this is like clear cutting we're talking about or going in and just raising the forest on behalf of the forest industry that's not what is being discussed here it's more like how do we manage the forest to to create a healthier habitat and ecosystem so how do we get to a point where we have these overly dense forests and if that wasn't how it always was uh from nature you know doing running its course and and not having as densely populated forests or you know native tribes and 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 people who were good at managing the forests also didn't do it that way what what when did that start to become yeah. a problem and how yeah so you know we had at the in the beginning of the of of the the 20th century in the early 1900s we had the creation of the forest service so theodore roosevelt went and established 
you know, massive amounts of acreage of national forests, which is great, and then created an agency to manage those national forests. And that was run by Gifford Pinchot, uh, who was kind of the first forester of the United States. And forestry was this fledgling uh, discipline that folks were studying at Yale, and the Yale group went and started running the, the Forest Service. The Forest Service, though, was trying. They, they had a lot of opposition at the time, right? So it wasn't a sure thing that this was a agency that was going to last, and it wasn't quite sure what its mission or its job was. It was just trying to get its footing. And in 1910, there was a historic fire out here in uh, in Montana, Idaho and eastern washington called the big burn and three million acres went up in flames and uh something like 80 80 people died in the fire and it became an epiphany for the forest service that their job was to stop wildfires like clear the deck like our number one task is going to be to manage wildfires and stop wildfires. And they even got to a point where they had a policy in the Forest Service where fires had to be put out by 10 a.m. the next day. They called it the 10 a.m. rule. And so you had all these fire towers put up in the West and everything. And that so that became the reason for being and, and massive resources got pushed towards fire suppression. And so the Forest Service, and I think they would admit it today, at that period of U.S. history, got tunnel vision like everything was dedicated to suppressing forest fires what they were missing is that some fires good that you need some of that fire to open up the canopies and create these healthy forests so in dedicating so much to suppressing wildfire we actually created a problem where we're going to have much more wildfire now going forward and that's that's the historic point that we get to. And the Forest Service today will readily admit that, like, look, we were probably misguided for a long period of time. We probably had our priorities in the wrong place. And they're trying to undo all that. And to their credit, um, you know, the Biden administration has a massive uh, wildfire crisis strategy where they want to more intensively manage forests going forward. And so you see that turn. You see science and politics turning to say, look, there's we need to manage our forests and just not do fire suppression. And so that's hopeful. But still, we're, we've we've got this albatross of a hundred years of suppression around our neck, and it's got to be fixed. And so, right now, the Forest Service has to—I mean, they manage 193 million acres in the United States. 80 million acres is in need of restoration right now. Yeah, and on top of that, I mean, to my understanding, there's also the the reality that when we kind of had this mindset of wildfire suppression, it was also a time where. Americans were rightly getting frustrated with how much deforestation was happening. And so the reaction was to plant as many trees as closely together as possible, because the more trees, the better. But when you do that, you also create these unnaturally dense forests that are like basically tinderboxes. And and so when you have all the efforts being put into suppressing a wildfire and not preventing the extent of horrible wildfires from a more offensive strategy, right? This forest management is more offensive strategy. They were playing defense while also planting these trees everywhere and trying to basically make it see sound good, but it actually wasn't doing much good to your point. Um, I also want to go back to the fact that, you know, this was something that even humans were doing correctly before, you know, forget about deforestation, forget about, wildfire suppression and all the things that have kind of caused us to get where we are. There was a time in history, uh, not that long ago where humans were being really good stewards of our forests. And those humans tended to be the native American communities in this country. Can you talk about what 
we can learn from those communities and why that's worked for them and how we lost sight of that. Yeah. You know, no, it's, it's a great point. And, you know, the tribes were very much hands-on managers of, of the habitat and ecosystem um, before, before white settlement occurred. I mean, tribes traditionally burned forests, not burned them down, but did these low intensity, what we call prescribed fires today to enhance fish and wildlife habitat, to improve uh, forage growth for them. They recognized that, that fire, you know, if, if a forest was managed appropriately could yield gain, could yield crop uh, for them to, to eat and survive on. Um, I saw uh, an interview recently with the tribal chairman of the North Fork Mono tribe and he had said something I thought was was pretty amazing was that North Americans um, carried out you know light burning prescribed burning on about two percent of California annually. That's amazing. I mean, I think two percent of California acreage used to be under prescribed burns from Native American tribes, and what that meant was back at that time you pretty much had like about sixty four trees per acre. Now, with the absence of fire and the absence of prescribed burning, you've got about three hundred trees per acre in the state of California. Big wow. difference. Yeah, that's massive. I mean, and, and again, it goes back to the 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 point that not necessarily is it true that more trees equal better uh in fact you can destroy more trees by having more trees there in the first place because you create this tinderbox and 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 i would just go you know on to say that you know with climate change we are expecting more rainfall and humidity especially in the winter which will as a result grow a lot more underbrush to be thicker and bigger than it would have been otherwise but then when it dries out in the summer, like it will, uh, yeah. because the summers are dry yeah. in pretty much all parts of the West, no matter how much humidity has increased, then you have that much more dead brush to clear out. And so it's this chicken and egg thing where, but it honestly doesn't matter, you know, which one comes first, because if climate change is contributing to more dead brush, that means we need forest management even more. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think people see it as climate change, we just need to solve climate change, or we just need to manage our forests. And I think to your point earlier, we need to be doing both. Why do you feel like it's so difficult to have that conversation right now? You're with policymakers all the time, and you're also creating a lot of really good ideas. But good ideas don't just happen at a snap of a finger uh, in the United States right now. Not, Not that they ever have, but it's even slower than usual. What is going on when it comes to forest management that's preventing us from getting it done? Yeah. So I would say there are three things that are happening that are keeping us from getting this done. One's red tape, one's litigation, and the other, I would say, are pollution standards. And some of these are like self-inflicted wounds on ourselves. But red tape, I mean, there has been massive appropriations coming out of Congress, coming from the administration to address forest management. I think there was something like $5 billion uh, that had been put in recent bills, like the infrastructure bill and the IRA uh, bill recently, to do forest management. The problem is um, our, our environmental laws and processes were set up to stop things like forest management because they did picture this as clear cutting of force and timbering. And so we had acts like the National Environmental Policy Act passed in the 1970s to do thorough analysis, which is a good thing on projects that are having impacts. But what we're also finding is those laws now are being are hindering 
environmentally sound projects, conservation first type projects moving forward. So for example, on the red tape, you know, Perk had researchers uh, the last couple of years looking at how long it would take to permit a forest management project through the system. And what they were finding out is depending on what level of permitting, it's taking anywhere from four to seven years just to start a forest management project in order to go through the permitting process, which is an enormous amount of time, uh, unnecessary, you know, enormous amount of time to these projects. Litigation, um, you have a number of groups out there and forest management's one of these interesting things. It's kind of like climate science where there's a consensus around the science and but you have a few outlier kind of deniers that are out there i call them forest deniers and and the forest deniers are they get a lot of ink they make a lot of noise but the science really isn't on their side and what they've been doing is weaponizing things like uh the national environmental policy act nepa or the endangered species act to try to slow these uh projects down their their view of the world is preservation like leave it as it is but what they're missing is what they're leaving as it is, is not natural. It's a man-made creation for the last 100 years. So you're leaving something as it is that is not as nature intended it to be. So um, it's a misguided outlook, but what they're using is litigation that, you know, it's take those four or seven years to get through a permitting process. If it gets litigated, you add two years to that. So you could have nine years before you can start a prescribed, you know, burn uh, program. The third thing is, is our pollution standards. Um, you know, the Clean Air Act, which was which was passed with all good intent and has done great things for us. Um, it is interesting when you have a wildfire, um, the smoke emitted from the wildfire does not count uh, against the Clean Air Act standards. Congress, you know, and the administrations recognize that, yeah, you're going to have wildfire smoke. So each state that has to maintain clear air gets a pass when it comes to wildfire. But if there's smoke from prescribed fire, from intentionally set fire that can help minimize wildfire, that smoke counts against a state's pollution standards. So it doesn't make any sense that like one of the ways to fix is with more prescribed burns, but, and that's going to happen, say, at the Forest Service level, but then you go over the EPA and the EPA is going to punish you because you're in violation of the Clean Air Act at that point. Wow. I mean, you might as well just pretend to start a, a prescribed burn and, and say that it was yeah. an accident. Say it was a wildfire. That, that's, that's absurd. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that that goes, you know, it, it also, it goes even further in the fact that uh, a wildfire that's started by humans or exacerbated by the lack of forest management, the emissions from that fire are not counted in the emissions for like a state like California when they calculate how much their emissions are going up or down. Forest fire, smoke, and, and all the CO2 and other particles do not get counted either. So not only is the government uh, basically disincentivizing forest management because they're counting that against uh, against clean air standards, but they're not counting uh, a, a wildfire, a normal wildfire, which would be way worse than a prescribed burn for for the, for the air quality. They're also not counting the emissions uh, right. from these in their calculations. And how do you fix that? I mean, it's I would think most Americans would say. That that seems pretty common sense that that should be changed. Um, are is this just not a big enough priority for Congress? Is it something where these litigators and these kind of maybe far left, for lack of a better term, environmental groups are are opposing it, so it's really hard to get past it? Like what what is holding kind of these some of these common sense things back? 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's old thinking that's holding this back. Um, I think there there are a lot of groups that make a lot of noise that don't want to see any changes, are willing to live with the consequences of where we are today for fear that opening up the Clean Air Act or doing something different is going to have negative consequences that we that we don't foresee. Um, what I think is interesting is you have this sort of this bipartisan, you know, forest management is one of these areas where you actually have bipartisanship going on in Congress, mm-hmm. which is a darn rare thing these days and that should that should tell you something but it's kind of the radical middle that is you know working on these issues and trying to punch through and get some common sense uh things done in congress right now but we kind of again we keep shooting ourselves in the foot you know the the biden administration epa just issued a a, a particulate rule an epa particulate rule and it was clear that the rule was issued the standards were issued without thoughts to like what the impact would be on prescribed burning or controlled burns you know, to improve the forest. So, you know, you had organizations like Perk weighing in saying, hey, you know, there ought to be ex- exceptions here for prescribed fire. There are organizations like Tall Timbers Research Station, which is the, you know, the birthplace of fire ecology. This was the the original researchers who who were recognizing the benefits of, of using fire to manage, uh, manage our woods um, are concerned about it too. So the experts here, like even today, when we should know better, we're still pushing policies that feel like they were, you know, done in the 1960s and 1970s. Right. And we have so much more information to, to, to yeah. say that we should not do that. One of the complicating factors, in addition to the old way of thinking and and basically 100 years of doing things the wrong way, is that there's a lot of different com- uh, companies, governments, tribal leaders who have jurisdiction over forests. Forests are not owned by any one person or any one group, which is great, obviously. You've got landowners, corporations, uh, private landowners, corporations, state, local, federal government, um, and tribes all in ownership of the the forests in this country. Where are we seeing the breakdown between that? How can we, like, when, when you look at this issue, is that kind of complicated fabric of ownership part of the problem and what is the what are some of the solutions to these many levels of ownership over these forests that are all burning and they're burning from each other a a public publicly owned forest is is burning maybe it started on a private one or vice versa how do you how do you basically corral all of these different owners into into a solution yeah no it's a it's a great question. Um, you, know, you and I were out at a ranch here in Montana a couple years ago when the smoke had set in. And we're, we were talking about this, uh, and it, and the private ranch manages its forest well, right? Like the, they're on there, and then and it borders the national forest. And it's worried that the national forests are going to go up in flames, and somehow they're going to be blamed for it because they're the ranch that just happens to be to be nearby. Um, so, you know, more coordination is is definitely needed. You know, I don't think this is a. I don't think we're trying to blame any entity of government here. I, this has just been misguided policy that um, we're starting to straighten out. We need to find ways to work through that. Uh, one of the examples I like to use of of different levels of government, private. Uh, local, state, federal working together is in the South. Um, the South does have a history of prescribed fire, of managing its forests. There's so much private land down there that's been the driver of it because private land stewards have the resources, and and that was also a region of the country that um, that controlled burns and prescribed fire were utilized pretty heavily to manage lands. 
So in my old home state of Florida, where I originally came from, um, there was one individual who worked for the state, who worked for the Division of Forestry uh, at the state, that if you wanted to do a prescribed burn on land, whether it was federal land, state land, county land, or private land, that one individual was vested with the authority to issue the permit on behalf of all the government agencies impacted at the time. So what he would tell me is you'd come in in four minutes, I could tell you whether you could go out and do a prescribed burn or not. Mm. In the state of California, where something like that doesn't exist, you show up, you've got to go to nine different agencies to get nine different permits, and it's going to take you at least nine months to get through that process. And when you're trying to manage, uh, especially for something like prescribed burn, they call it these burn days, available burn days. You can't burn every day because there might be high winds. Uh, there might be other weather factors where it's too hot. Um, you know, you want to get them on you know more windless days where maybe there's more humidity in the air so you can control these fires. And, and so you just don't have nine months. You don't have that flexibility. It's not like, okay, you got the permit. Now you can go out and do it. Oftentimes you have these small windows where the weather opens up, where it's perfect to do a forest management project and you need a quick answer. And it's not going to be this bureaucracy. I mean, we like to say wildfires move fast, bureaucracy moves slow. So something's got to give here. That's that's a really good point. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in a state like Montana, when there is a wildfire and it's on you know, public land. Another complicating factor is that because it's on a maybe a national public land, uh, a U.S. Forest Service property or a, uh, a National Park Service property, the local stakeholders don't have much of a say in terms of a how to handle it or b how to prevent it. Is a, is that true? And and if so, how could you basically increase the collaboration so that that isn't the case? Yeah, well, and there's you know there's something that has that is in statute right now that needs to be improved called good neighbor authority, um, where it actually enables a state, a local government, or tribe to actually do forest management on uh, national forest land mm. um, and be able to, for example, keep revenue that they can get from you know maybe selling the small diameter trees that you know come out as a result of mechanical thinning. Um, the problem with good neighbors, so good neighbor enables states to kind of ride into the void. And tr- or tribes to ride into the void is that oftentimes those revenues, if if they, you know, their incentive is to generate revenues to to put back into the project, but they can only put it back in the project on the national forest land, not on the state land next to it, or not in the tribal land next to it. Um, and so what we want to do is we we're trying to improve that act so that there are better incentives, especially for tribes and counties, uh, to be able to retain that revenue uh, for themselves for on lands of theirs that abut, say, these national forest that can go to to improve that. Well, and we hear all the time that uh, I think that in this kind of heated debate that, uh, you know, f- private landowners and the timber companies are to blame for a lot of the forest health issues or that uh, that's on one side or that, uh, you know, the publicly owned forests, specifically the federal ones, but also some of the state ones are the w- most unhealthy. Can you kind of give us some insight into with, on you know on average who is taking the best care of the forests and where can we take some you know learning from them and is that is there a specific part of the country where a certain community whether that is a private landowner or uh state or federal authorities are are having a better time managing their forests is there a place that we can learn from that so what's kind of the breakdown of who's doing it well yeah. uh, out of the different types of owners and what can we learn from them yeah so i think there's i think there's somewhat of a consensus that the southeast united states 
probably does it best. But the Southeast United States is blessed also with weather that enables them to get out there and do prescribed fires in a way that um, that the Western states have different challenges. Western states are going to have higher wind. They're going to have topographical uh, challenges, elevation challenges, dryness, things like that, that, uh, that make it harder to do. Um, but the private, the private lands are showing the model of how to do this. That said, there are some really cool government-based projects that have happened in the West that have been very successful. Um, our One of our mutual friends, the Nature Conservancy, uh, has a reserve in Oregon called the Saikan Marsh. Um, it's about 30,000 acres. And they manage for prescribed fire, mechanical thinning, you know, all the things we're talking about doing pretty intensively on that property. And in 2021, there was a, a famous wildfire that came through called the bootleg fire that ended up burning 400,000 acres uh, right there in Oregon. But when that fire hit the Saikan Marsh Reserve that the TNC was moving, the fire moved low to the ground, was manageable. Not that there wasn't any damage, but it was much more manageable and it wasn't like this you know, huge, huge wildfire that you would see in other places. The same experience happened. The National Park Service uh, for about 50 years has been using prescribed fire to manage the uh, Mariposa Grove of sequoia trees in Yosemite National Park. And in 2022, there was a wildfire called the the uh, the, the Watchburn Fire that moved through that through there. And when it got to this grove of 2,000-year-old trees that had been appropriately managed where the underbrush was cleared, that fire just kind of moved through very quietly, caused very little damage. None of the trees perished as a result of it. So there was a case where the National Park Service was doing a good job, the Nature Conservancy was doing a good job, and we just need to do more of that at scale because there are examples out here in the West where it can be done. Right. And, and I mean, basically what's frustrating, I would think for you, especially knowing so much about this and, and also for, for those of us who are, you know, even are a percentage of, of, of the knowledge of that is that the answers are in front of us, right? The, the science couldn't be clearer. The data couldn't be clearer on what we need to do. And yet we still, to your point, there's, there's reasons for this, but um, we aren't able to, to, to basically do it as fast as we need to in terms of the forest management and restoring forests to a healthy point. And you can prevent a big chunk of these wildfires. Different studies show different percentages, but a massive percentage of the wildfire, at least uh, the size of the wildfire uh, season in the United States, could be shortened and 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 shrinked uh, if we actually just took these steps that we know what to do. It's not like climate change where, yeah, we kind of know some of the solutions, but some of them we don't really understand yet because we don't have the technology or whatever. We have the solutions to restore our forests and, and to prevent uh these massive forest fires. One of the things that we honestly, the, probably the, the toughest thing to prevent out of all of the forest fire mismanagement and, and everything over the last century is the increase in human stupidity. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is whether it's a gender reveal party or a firework mm-hmm. or a car breaking down at the side of the road or a um, machine in a forest breaking down and catching on fire. Um, there are a lot of humans causing wildfires and the studies in the United States show somewhere between 80 and 90% of the wildfires are started by human activity, basically creating this fire that uh, maybe would have happened naturally, but we definitely have not uh, been doing. We we definitely have been setting things on fire that don't need to be. How how do you stop that? And and how can we hold people accountable 
knowing that some of those things are inevitable, but also knowing that people need to be a lot more careful and a lot more aware that they are going to potentially have this harmful effect. How do we stop that? And what are, what are the ways to hold people accountable for it? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you know, Benji, I mean, this is how long has smoky smoky bear been around? (laughs) This is, this is, yeah, this is, it was probably what the greatest marketing campaign in the history of the world was smoky bear and only you can prevent, you know, wildfires and, um, so we do have a little bit of precedent. It's it's a message that that resonates. I think what you're seeing, you're right. Most of these wildfires um, do end up being human caused uh, through through carelessness. Some of it is this massive movement into the wildland urban interface, mm-hmm. and we've got a lot more people moving into areas where their quality of life is improved because they're near public lands and they want to recreate in public lands and they want to be in public lands. And so developments pushing out to this urban wildland interface, people are moving there. And so it's going to create more and more of a human problem going forward. Um, and there's only so much smoky bear can do, uh, can't do a lot of it. I think, I think, I think we have the tools, um, you know, it's, it's not, I I haven't heard like necessarily we need to go increase penalties on folks. Like I think the tools are on the books, but I think people need to know that there are consequences for their actions. And you just don't see that. Like when you go, when I go to the national forest here, there's nothing in my face to say, like, if you're careless and you set the forest on fire, this is what can happen to you. You know, these are the fines you'll pay. This is jail time you'd serve or something like that. I think we can do a better job of advertising consequences so that people are more thoughtful uh, when they go in there. I know when I was in Florida, we working with Governor Bush, we had a we had a big sort of surge in gun crime. And, you know, gun control was this big discussion at the time, much like it is today. But one of the things we did is like, look, if we if we punish people who are committing crimes with guns specifically, in a very severe way, and we get the message out, we can reduce gun crime. So we had a law called 1020 Life, which was actually based on California policy, where if you committed a crime with a gun, it was a 10-year mandatory sentence. If you injured somebody, it was 20 years mandatory. If you killed someone, it was mandatory life. And I know like minimum mandatory sentences are controversial, but we went in there and like advertised the heck out of it. And gun crime dropped pretty dramatically at the time because people knew there was a severe penalty, a strong, severe penalty for committing a crime with a gun. And we got that message out there to ensure folks. And we actually went into the prisons and interviewed inmates that were like serving 10 years or 20 years based on a gun crime and had them as a testimonial. Like, yeah, I wish I hadn't done it. I knew I knew better. You know, so. Well, it seems like we need to create a a thought process where people think twice about uh about kind of taking these these stupid actions uh or or just careless i mean sometimes it's i mean it's it's almost always unintentional um but having that second thought is important and to your point i don't think smoky the bear himself is going to do that when i go into the forest and and have a campfire uh while i'm i'm camping i'm not thinking about would smoky the bear judge me uh if i if i started a wildfire i i you know i I think back to that marketing campaign around when I was little, uh, we, we had iTunes and the, the, there were these ads about don't, you, you wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't steal a movie from a movie store. Don't download music illegally. Um, and I remember like, I didn't want to download music illegally because I had seen this commercial of somebody stealing a car and stealing a movie from the movie store. And I'm like, I wouldn't do that. So, and, and, and I think having that kind of second, thought process, uh, you know, second guessing yourself is, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this 
gender reveal party in the middle of the forest in in August when it's been dry for the last two months. Um, maybe we should do a gender reveal party in a different way than setting off some sort of fire. Um, I th- think that it seems really simple, but to your point, if there's a way for people to get that into their minds, it could make a huge, huge difference. And knowing the penalties of, of that result, uh, I think are really important. Do most people who, um, have these fires that they accidentally start do they do they get caught i mean is that something that is even trackable how does that yeah i mean do they tend to find it's it's funny they tend to find the folks who who have done this um i I don't think a lot of this is anonymous um i'm not sure what the exact track record is on (laughs) on tracking these guys down i suspect they uh they stick smoky on them and smoky finds them wherever (laughs) it is the smoky tracker it's smoky it's the smoky tracker so yeah <laughs> yeah well i mean i i agree i mean the penalties and the fines are already there and we, we we can hold these people accountable but if they know ahead of time what the risk is i think that could really help so switching gears for a second um knowing that we only have a few more minutes here uh, i've got a couple more questions and and one of them is going back to that climate change discussion and I think most people don't think about the emissions related to forest fires after the effect of them um, and, and the massive increase in emissions. Uh, by my estimations, between 4 and 6% of American emissions every year, if it was included in the emissions calculations, would come from forest fires. That's a remarkable stat because that's only a few states in the country for only a couple months out of the year for something that is entirely preventable for the most part, contributing four to 6% of American emissions um, and obviously destroying tons of forests. What, how do you see the chicken and the egg with climate change? Do you see climate change increasing wildfires, but also the wildfires increasing climate change? Or how do you see that dichotomy happening? Just for those who are concerned about climate change, how do you see that playing a role either before the fires or after the fires? Yeah, I mean, wildfires are a climate change issue. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like if you're, if you care about climate change and you're not doing something to address wildfires and you're not doing something to address forest management, improve forest management, um, I question whether you're really for fixing climate change. You know, the numbers you used are evident. The numbers I've used in the past have been um, just, I think it was in 2021 from Western wildfires, we had something like 130 million tons of CO2 released back into the atmosphere. The equivalency in automobiles is 29 million automobiles. CO2 emissions for an entire year. So one year of wildfires in the West was the equivalent of one year's worth of 29 million cars being on the road. If there was a climate change policy that said you can get rid of 29 million fossil fuel burning cars on the road, people would jump at that in a heartbeat. If you could fix, if you can fix the wildfire issue, if you can do more management of this, it's going to have natural benefits. Um, California which has been very aggressive in CO2 emission reductions over the last year, just in 2020 with their wildfire season, erased 16 years of emissions cuts just from the CO2 release from wildfires. Um, even in the solution space, like uh, companies are going out buying carbon credits. They're buying forests to hold carbon credits. So say Microsoft goes out, they buy 500,000 acres in carbon credits, and then a wildfire puts it all up. So they've lost all those carbon credits, you know? So the carbon credit market gets all out of whack too at the same time. So I, again, it's, it's one of those things people don't naturally put the wildfire and forest management issue together with a, a fix in climate change, but it is very much a, it is very much a climate change issue and it is the chicken and it is the egg too, at the same time. Well, and, and, you know, these are some numbers we just crunched for my book that's coming out next year, but 
basically the the dollar per ton removal of carbon from preventing forest fires is somewhere between five and a hundred dollars a ton, which seems like a big range, uh, but it depends on which part of the country and how, you know, how much management is needed for the equivalency of what the green new deal calls for in terms of, uh, ton, you know, ton removal of, of carbon per dollar. Um, it's $14,000 to per ton of carbon removed to enact the green new deal. And it's somewhere between five and $100 per ton of yeah. carbon removed for forest management, five and a hundred versus 14,500. Right. So it's a super simple way in a cost-effective way to your point that if you had, you know, some sort of other way of phrasing it, like, you know, cars off the road or green new deal implemented, people would love the solution. But for some reason, because it's forest fires, people don't think of it that way. We've got to change that narrative. One of the other you know, impacts of it's not even just the forest fires uh, contributing to emissions. It's also the fact that once that ecosystem is damaged, yeah, it's really hard to uh, sequester carbon from forests that have been burned until they grow back. So there's also that after effect that's not even included in the emissions increases. How do you see the the other environmental impacts of forest fire impacting? Like, w- what are some of those other impacts outside of emissions and outside of burning the forests? Like, how does that affect wildlife and the ecosystems? And how difficult is it to restore these places yeah. once it's been burned and the, yeah. the effects outside of climate change? Well, and, and it's a good question um, because there's also different intensity of wildfire too. What we're having today in these mega fires are high intensity, high severity wildfires that oftentimes bake the soil so much that you don't even get the regrowth. I mean, we've got pictures of, um, you know, historic forest, then overgrown forest, then forest burned down. And then 20 years later, it looks like a baked, you know, desert, you know, without, you know, it's just like low shrubs and weeds and things that are growing back. The trees, uh, the trees aren't even growing back. So, um, you know, that's one issue. I think habitat and watersheds are, you know, these are huge ecosystem issues that are impacted in addition to the air and carbon that's emitted from a wildfire. But think about, you know, tens of millions of Americans get their drinking water, their potable water from uh, ecosystems in public lands on national forests, um, you know, specifically in places like uh, Montana and California where I live. And if you have massive wildfires and, and those trees uh, hold the sediment from getting into the watersheds. Um, if you have these wildfires and now we have sediment pouring into the watersheds, which uh, contaminates and clogs drinking water and potable water. Uh, I know we have a project out here that if there's a massive fire up outside of Bozeman, uh, water systems are just going to shut down. You know, they're not going to be able to process water uh, for for citizens. You know, habitat, we took, you know, everybody loves endangered species, threatened species, um, there was a there was a fire in Northern California called the Antelope Fire uh, a few years ago. That was um, one of the worst ones, right? It was one, yeah. And it was and it was interesting. They were they were supposed to be doing management, forest management. The Forest Service had it all teed up. It was the Klamath National uh, National Forest, and um, there were organizations that objected to it because they were wanting to save the the northern spotted owl and they wanted to save 10,000 acres of northern spotted owl habitat and so they were objecting to any kind of forest management going in there the antelope fire comes down and guess what it burned down 10,000 acres of northern spotted owl habitat <laughs> so that doesn't what what some environmental groups were trying to do by blocking forest management actually ended up wiping out 
you know, 10,000 acres of habitat for a, for an endangered owl. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, the massive fires, we, we also wrote about this for the book. Um, the, the massive fires that were created from trying to protect the spotted owl, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, on average, the fires that were created from that protection and, and preservation mindset created 2.3 megatons of carbon on average per fire and burned the habitat, it burned 75% of the owl's habitat in those fires. Yeah. So again, this kind of preservation hands-off mindset, because to your point, we have already made the impact on these forests. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like we didn't touch them and now we're going to continue not touching them. We've touched them. We've made them you know, mismanaged. We've, we've planted trees clo- too close together. Climate change is obviously having an impact. We've already had an impact. So if we don't have this hands-on mindset, we have massive, massive consequences that actually end up hurting the environment more than some of these things that maybe don't sound as good, like a prescribed burn. But a prescribed burn sounds a hell of a lot better than yeah. uh, than a massive wildfire that burns down the acreage of, of Colorado over the course of a year or two. So that's, I mean, that's really, really important. And, and to your point, the ecosystems are almost impossible to rebuild, especially over the course of a couple of decades. I was in eastern Washington with uh, Representative Catherine Morris Rogers, and we toured a Native American tribal land that had the impact of a fire that started miles and miles away off the tribal land, came in, wiped out their forests, and they've tried for about a decade to replant that forest, and they just cannot do it because the soil is so, so dry and dead and burned that they can't they can't even try to restore it. Uh, and obviously they're hoping that that changes. They're trying tons of different things, but they, they just can't figure it out because of how severe the fire was. And that's not just a climate problem. That's an ecosystem problem and, and so many other things that need to be fixed, uh, to, to even get their environment back. So we're running out of time. This has been fascinating. We could talk for hours about this. And I think the world would benefit from hearing your stance on, on this and, and the way that you've seen it, uh, past this. And, and I hope we can have you on again to talk about it, but for the final question, I think it should be pretty fun, which is if you were a king for a day of either Montana, where you live now, or the United States, you can pick either one because I know you know there's there's a lot of focus on kind of doing things in a way that's regionally smart. But either way, what would you do to implement common sense forest health practices right now that the everyday person could start yeah. to advocate for? Yeah, God, I mean it's a, it's a great question. Um, I I think you know first of all. Um, where we can do the most good is on our national forests, I think. And a lot of these Western states, like if I was governor of Western state, I've got an enormous amount of national forest land um, in my state. Uh, we have the science that tells us what we need to do. There's consensus there. We have the resources. Uh, money is flowing freely to get this stuff done. It's just this kind of this delay, red tape, burying people in paperwork. Um, you know, we've, and, and so Congress, Congress is actually like, I know Benji, you guys are like focused on doing good things in Congress. So I would tell like your, your people, the people listening to you, that there are fixes sitting in Congress right now that are bipartisan fixes that if they, you know, guys like Joe Manchin are all for and Hickenlooper in Colorado and Heinrich in New Mexico and Steve Daines in Montana have, have come around these solutions. One is there's a, a, a Cottonwood is a is a legal case that is that happened out here in the Ninth Circuit that creates incredible delays in forest management projects. It requires uh, folks in the Forest Service to have to go back and consult 
over and over again with the Fish and Wildlife Service on species stuff. And it's duplicative. You know, Democrats and Republicans recognize duplicative. That's sitting there in Congress waiting to be passed. And, and that's all, all you need to know is cottonwood. Call your member and say, cottonwood, like fix cottonwood. Um, because the way the way that, that that policy, it's implemented in most of the Pacific Northwest and California is the jurisdiction. In, in the 10th Circuit of the United States, which is Colorado, Wyoming, and um, New Mexico, and places like that, it's done right. Like you're gonna have to go through these repetitive uh, consultation processes. So I would say, you know, Cottonwood, that you're familiar with the Save Our Sequoias Act out there that has bipartisan support uh, that would help do uh, exclusions to permitting reviews uh, to expedite projects in in uh, California with the Sequoias. Good Neighbor Authority, which we talked about, is legislation that's sitting out there. Um, more, you know, more use of what they call categorical exclusions uh, to to avoid getting caught in this morass of bureaucracy. Um, yeah, I, I mean, those are the, the I would be pushing for that because that's right on the cusp. Those things are right on the cusp of happening and everything's lining up to get it done. I think this is a Congress where it can happen. And, um, you know, I'd be very focused, very focused on on that. And that's your sweet spot. That's where you're you get your uh, you get your supporters worked up. I think you, you can hit the halls and, and do a lot of good there. Well, we're, we're trying. We've got 20,000 people and growing across the country trying to advocate for that. And, you know, we have the climate commitment, which is our, uh, you know, climate platform of how we can take action uh, to prevent the worsening effects of climate change. And a big part of that is forest management. We actually have a huge call to action that people can take on our climate commitment site, which is the climatecommitment.com. Um, under the take action tab, there's a big forest management push. And uh, I th- what I'm hearing is the magic word is cottonwood. The magic word is... Uh, it's forest management and, and talking to your elected officials about that because the, they're like you said it's bipartisan legislation that the reality is it just needs to be prioritized by our politicians and be pushed through across the finish line um and they won't be able to do that as quickly as they need to without hearing from real everyday people voters that they care about brian thank you for your leadership on this issue i know a lot of those policies um whether that's been embraced by Democrats or Republicans or or state or federal electeds has been largely from PERC research and reports uh, and, and policy suggestions. You guys have been at the forefront of this. You personally have been at the forefront of it, obviously getting Florida on the right track to be one of the, the national leaders, if not the national leader in the forest uh, management and forest fire dialogue. And uh, now you are doing the same thing at the national level with PERC. Could not be more appreciative of your time, your leadership and uh, willingness to come on today. Thanks so much. Thanks, my man. I appreciate all you do and and kind of your leadership and the youth movement out there. It's it's so important that we bring uh, young conservatives into conservation. I think uh, Theodore Roosevelt would be very proud of you. So Well, he'd be very proud of you as well. I'm just trying to live up to the Brian Yablonski legacy. <laughs> all right. We'll talk to you soon. Really appreciate it again. Thank you so much. Thanks. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.